Well, I've often wondered what will be said about me when I die. Now, I know what's said about me now, and I'm hoping that some of that will be left out. Now, I'm not talking about my funeral because we know that even the worst people are treated as angelic at their own funeral. But I'm specifically talking about what people will remember about me long after I'm gone. Because sermons are recorded that centuries from now, people will be able to access all of my sermons and hear all of my teaching about God and his word. Yeah, probably not likely. Maybe it's my academic writing that people will remember that's going to be different than all of the other writings that's come before where instead of sitting on a shelf in some library collecting dust, scholars and pastors are going to read my writing and be changed forever. Yeah, not, not going to happen either. So what will I be remembered for? Now, I've thought about it often. Let me ask you this. What will you be remembered for long after you're gone? Will it be your success in your employment, your finances, your friends, your family? The fact is that most of us, if not all of us, will be forgotten a hundred years from now. Now, I'm not encouraging any of us to be morbid. Though the Bible does talk about how it's better to go to a funeral, a house of mourning, than it is a house of celebration. Because when someone dies, we actually think about important things, things that matter. And this is something we should do regularly. We spend time thinking about things that matter, important things. And the more that I think about what I'll leave behind when I die, the one thing I keep coming back to is that I want to leave a legacy of spiritual endurance, growth, and expansion. Summed up, what I want to be remembered for, or the legacy I want to leave behind, is one of discipleship. I can't take money with me. I can't take my house, my car, or my belongings, but what I can do now that makes a mark on eternity is how faithful I was in giving up my time and my energy and my prayer to the work of the gospel spreading. That's what I could be remembered for. Is that something you want to leave behind? Parents want to leave their children in a better situation than they were, and that's our intention with our spiritual children. I want those whom I disciple to be closer to Jesus than I ever was. I want them to be more obedient than I was, and I want them to disciple more than I did. These are all things that I've thought about, and I'm sure many of us here have as well. So it's with that that I want to see what Jesus says about what's really important, the, the legacy that we can leave behind. Hearing his gospel commission, his, his great commission, telling us what we need to do and what matters most in our lives as followers of Christ. So turn with me to Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. It says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now verse 18 is the basis for the command given by Jesus in verses 19 and 20. See, only God can give this command. This is the first point. Jesus' royalty, his royalty. Now I can stand here telling you to do something. I can, I can tell you to go out and do something, and, and many people will. You know me as your pastor, and you know my heart, and, and you've, you've, you've sat with me, and you've talked with me. We've had lunch together, and so you know me personally. But that does not mean that you're required to do everything that I tell you to do in the faith. It doesn't. It, 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 I'm not perfect. I'm certainly prone to error. I'm not infallible, and I'm not sovereign. I don't have the right to give orders pertaining to anything of the faith unless God says it already. See, Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to Jesus. There is nothing vague, ambiguous, or uncertain about these words. There are no maybes. This is a bold statement about Jesus claiming to be who he is, fully God. He has the authority to command people to do things. This is something that's said by someone who is either certain of his power or an absolute madman. Some claim that Jesus was a, a prophet or a, a good teacher. But these words would show that he's actually neither or he is, in fact, what he claims to be. This is so incredibly important to understand because if you miss this, if you fail to see the implications of the words of Jesus here, you're going to, in effect, ignore what he says in verses 19 and 20. They won't have the same impact because it's in verse 18 that he's showing why what he says matters. And he says two things in verse 18 that establish his sovereign kingship. Jesus' authority is complete. He says this, all authority, not some, not a little, all authority. There is nothing that falls outside of his divine rule and dominion. Everything that has been, is, or will be belongs to him. And this rule extends everywhere. He says that all authority is his on heaven and on earth. This is echoed in Philippians 2. It says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everything and everywhere and everyone falls under this divine jurisdiction of Jesus. All of creation acknowledges his sovereignty. Jesus was present and active at creation. Everything that we see around us today has been given to us only by the grace of God. The Dutch theologian, newspaper editor, professor, and prime minister Abraham Kuyper 
once said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So because of Jesus' divine authority, he is qualified to give us the commands that we see in verses 19 and 20. This serves as our motivation and our calling as Christians. And notice how 19 begins. Therefore. Now it's easy to memorize this verse as go and make disciples of all nations, but we're leaving out an important word. Many will read this passage and quickly move on from the the word therefore, but to do that would be a grave mistake. What this word should cause us to do is read backwards, not in the sense of reading out of order, but rather it should make us go back a few verses to see what therefore is actually talking about. The word is known uh, as a conjunctive adverb which compares or contrasts. It shows a sequence of events or shows a cause and effect. For example, listen to this sentence. The weather has grounded all flights out of McGee Tyson. Therefore, I will not be coming home. What the therefore does is show why I will not be coming home. Now, if those sentences were split apart and the therefore was removed, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. And the use of the word therefore in verse 19 tells us something important. It shows us the command from Jesus gives us in verse 19 is based on the claim that he makes in verse 18. Now, with all that said, there's an important factor that we need to understand here. And I may say something that will sound strange to you. It, it, it may sound counterintuitive to everything else that I've said, but, but, but hear me on this. We don't go out to win the world for Christ. There are churches and organizations, parachurch groups, that their designed intent is to go win as many people to Christ. And it's a, it's a noble calling. But the problem is, is that can breed pressure evangelism. See, we ought to be excited about sharing the gospel. And you may say, well, Ryan, how in the world do you say something like we don't go out and win the world for Christ? See, we'd all agree, though, that the gospel does move through God's people. How are people to hear without a preacher, someone sharing the good news? Now, we all get that, but it's been my experience that many people who are doing so are motivated simply because of numbers and not for the discipleship reasons that Scripture tells us to go out and evangelize and to train people. So what do churches do? They'll do what many of you have experienced throughout your time in church life is they'll do an altar call where the pastor will stand before the church and he'll motion to the guy leading music to keep going, keep going, and keep going, sing one more verse of I Surrender All. And the pastor encourages people to come forward and give their lives to Christ. Most people will call that an invitation. The pastor invites people, or whoever's sharing the gospel, invites people to ask Jesus into their hearts. Now a command from Jesus, our command from Jesus, is absolutely clear that we must share the gospel. But we must do this with an understanding that Jesus has promised that our faithfulness is what matters most. Because it's God who handles the results. No amount of pressuring, no amount of sappy songs, no amount of me pleading with you to beg for you to come down this aisle can convince you enough unless God is for stirring your heart. God is the one that moves in your heart before you can respond. 
When we put the pressure on ourselves to go and save souls, we lessen what Jesus has already done. Everything already belongs to him. When we go out to make disciples, it's not our task to work to convince someone to give their lives to Jesus. What we're called to do is to awaken their soul to the reality that already is. The gospel is not an invitation. It's not something we tell people about hoping they'll be convinced of what we have been convinced by. And that maybe, maybe they'll make a decision to come join us. That is not the gospel. That happens when you send out invitations to your kid's birthday party. Someone can decide whether or not to attend. The person doing the inviting has no control over who says yes and who says no. The power rests entirely on the one who receives the invitation. Now I think calling the gospel an invitation, I understand the meaning behind it, but I don't think it tells the full story. The gospel is not merely an offer that we accept or decline based on a check mark on a card like you're going to a wedding, attend, yes, fish or chicken, decisions, decisions. The gospel is not an invitation. The gospel is a summons from the king and a refusal to come to the king is defiance and disobedience. In legal speak, this is a difference between an attorney requesting a meeting versus you being subpoenaed to appear in court. You reject a meeting, no big deal, but if you refuse to testify, you will face the law. I spoke with someone on the phone once who said they were getting frustrated with the preaching at their local church. He said the, the term hell uh, or sin is rarely spoken and the focus of the preacher was entirely on love and grace. And it's true. For Christians, we need to remember that Jesus loves us in a way that we will never fully understand because his love is perfect and untainted by sin. We should remind ourselves daily of the love Jesus has for us. And I'm sure that's the motivation for this preacher. He's so enamored with the grace of God, though, that he has unfortunately lowered the level of importance of the law in the gospel. See, the law shows us that we're guilty before God. The law shows us that no man, woman, or child, no matter how sweet or seemingly innocent they are, can never satisfy the demands of God on their own. And that's why Christians can bask in the glory of God's grace, not because we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it at all. The church that only preaches God's grace while sacrificing talk of God's righteous judgment is just as deficient as a church that preaches God's law with no mention of God's grace. And though we may have the best of intentions, if all we're doing is talking about the love and grace of God, we're missing a vital portion of the gospel. Now back to the illustration of the law. What happens if you refuse a subpoena to appear in court? You find yourself in trouble. The law is a system of rules that we all live by, and you've disobeyed the law, so the only option that the court has is to fine you or to imprison you. You disobeyed the law. You must be punished. Now, do you see the connection between evangelism and disciple-making? 
See, we're not just requesting that people make a decision to come be with us. That's not that difficult to do. We can coax people. We can convince people. We can argue with people. And we can get people to repeat a prayer after us. That's not that hard to do. We're not just giving people a chance to make a decision. No, we are giving everyone around us a summons from the king. The king has told us that there is trouble for those who reject his commands. And what our job is, is to go out into the world and warn people that the king is coming. And he summoned all of us. And we do this with care and we do this with love, but we can never diminish the fact that this is not merely a request or a suggestion. It's a command, a summons from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. To reject him is to reject God because Jesus is God and every knee will bow to him as such. Every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is indeed Lord. Now the question coming back to the idea of the Great Commission, our passage in Matthew 28 is this, have you ever been afraid to share your faith? None of us like to be rejected. None of us seek out ways where we can be insulted or ignored, called stupid. Sometimes we worry that we don't have the right words to say or we don't have the proper rebuttals for someone who's antagonistic towards us and our faith. All those are valid. We don't want to experience them But have you ever considered that maybe that's putting too much pressure on yourself? If Jesus has promised that he has already won and that he has complete control over his creation, what pressure do we have then? It should give us great confidence to go out and share the gospel, knowing that no matter what people say, God is being glorified and that God will have mercy on whomever he wills, whether we have the right words to say or not. All this because the authority that Jesus has and claims in verse 18. So we know that whatever Jesus has commanded, he has also given us the power and the gifts and the abilities to accomplish those things for the glory of God. He says in verse 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is our role. So what does it mean to make disciples? If you could boil it down, this is what you'll find. To make a disciple is to share the gospel with someone. And if they repent and trust in Christ, you make them a learner. You work with them. You walk with them. This involves everything that we are as followers of Christ. You teach them the truth. You tell them when they are in danger of letting sin take root in their lives. You share with them the importance of the local church and how they should be active and present when the church gathers. You show them how to be a godly husband or wife, a faithful father or mother. In essence, you're showing them how to be a child of God. I've had many conversations with people, both Christian and not, about parenting. Why do we discipline our kids? Do we discipline our kids to create a a peaceful home? Some believe this. Others say it's to ensure our kids have all sorts of opportunities that we didn't have growing up. Still others think it's just to train children to be decent citizens. 
But for the Christian, our role as parents is to teach and exemplify what a life that has been radically transformed by the power of the gospel looks like. We do this so that our kids will know the grace of God and will in turn teach our next generation, our grandchildren, the wonders of God's love and grace. And in discipleship, we're spiritually parenting our spiritual children. Some of you may be thinking this. Well, wait a minute. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. But what happens if we're not able to go to a foreign country? What happens if we're not able to leave our family and our job and our responsibilities here to go somewhere else? Uh, Does that mean that we're out of this command, exempt from it? No. None of us are exempt from Jesus' words here in the Great Commission. This command has been given to each and every one of us so that the gospel will spread to all nations, tribes, and tongues. And just so you don't feel like, well, because you can't travel, you get a pass from this, let me ask you this. Do you work? Do you live in a neighborhood? Do you buy groceries? Do you go to school? Do you exercise at a gym? Do you volunteer? Do you go to the library, the park, or the soccer field? One of the biggest problems that I see in the American church today is that we are not faithfully sharing the gospel as we should. Far too many Christians believe that evangelism is the work for the professionals. I don't see that anywhere in scripture where it says that if you have a neighbor and they don't know Christ, that you need to bring them to someone who is a a pastor or an elder so they can share Christ. No, it is your responsibility to be witnesses and missionaries in your mission field, which is your neighborhood, your school, and your job. Evangelism is your work and mine. We don't have an option to not do it. We should be grateful to God that those in the early church didn't see things the way that we do. They risked their lives so the message of Jesus could be spread all over the world. And the story of the Christian faith is full of martyrs who have given their lives for Christ. And so many Christians sit back and think, well, I know Jesus. My neighbor doesn't. I'm just praying one day that they'll come to church with me. Is this what our forefathers in the faith died for? Did these men and women give of themselves so that we could find ourselves exempt from the work of evangelism and discipleship? God's called you to a distant and dangerous land. I stand with you. It's a noble task to give up on what's called the American dream and to give up on everything that you've been trained to put your hope in and instead put your hope in the gospel and how Jesus moves through the work of missionaries and evangelists. It's a noble task to serve God in obscurity. But even if you never leave East Tennessee, you're still serving on a mission field. You go places where people don't know Christ. You spend time with people who, if they were to die today, would spend eternity in hell. As far away from God's grace as possible. Why won't we tell them about Jesus? Are we too afraid to lose friends? To face rejection? Are we worried that God won't provide the words and the passion to speak boldly? 
if we are not evangelizing and not making disciples, we are being rebellious. This is more important than your job. This is more important than your bank account. More important than your enjoyment. This is the most important work that any Christian can do. So let me ask you this. Are you making disciples? Are you actually sharing the gospel with people? Are people coming to know the Lord through you? Are those who are already believers growing because of a relationship that you have built? Have you been seeking out Christians who aren't as mature as you so that you can pour God's word into them? Every single Christian needs to be in a discipling relationship. If you're a Christian, you have a command from Jesus, go do it. Now, excuses are flying through the air right now. I know because I fight them too. It's hard. I don't have the energy. I don't have enough time. I'm too old. I'm too young. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't make excuses? Aren't you glad that the church fathers didn't say the same things? Aren't you glad that your spiritual parents didn't say the same thing and instead they took time to disciple you? There are no valid excuses for a mature Christian to not be training, discipling others to mature in their faith. And there is no excuse for immature Christians to not be brought up in the faith by those who are more mature. So how do we do this? Jesus didn't simply say to make converts. If our evangelism is merely focused and our discipleship is merely focused on getting people to repeat a prayer or to commit to Jesus, we're only partially obeying what he's saying, which means that we're disobeying Jesus. He says that we are to make disciples, which is a lifelong process. There, there are no, uh, no days off in the work of discipleship. And to be truthful with you, counting decisions is not what I'm after. Large crusades will come through towns and, and, and people will walk forward and people will make professions of faith, but a strange thing happens. The numbers of those in churches don't rise with those numbers. Why? Because the people are repenting and putting their trust in Christ, but they're not being discipled. There's no framework, no system to help them to grow in their faith. It's like a group who goes on a short-term mission trip some, to some faraway country and they, they go and they, they share the gospel and people hear the truth of God's word and they, they trust in Christ and then a week later the mission team leaves and the people are left saying, well now what? What do we do now? How are they to learn without a teacher? See, Jesus has called us not simply to make converts but to make disciples. And we do that by what we see in verse 20. This is our responsibility. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We read this passage and we see how easy it is to think that we're supposed to simply teach people facts. After all, teaching is passing information from one person to another. It's how we learn, why we go to school, why we read books and listen to sermons. We've been created by God to learn. And that's how we grow. But that's not exactly what we're supposed to do in discipleship. What does Jesus actually say that we're supposed to teach? Observe all that he commanded. That's a substantial difference between just teaching someone some information. 
See, from a Christian perspective, teaching is not just proclaiming and receiving information. Teaching is not listening to lectures or podcasts. Learning is the pattern of life intended for every Christian. We're to never to stop learning about what God says and what he does. And the word observe means to keep. Jesus says that we must not teach theology for theology's sake. We must not teach the Bible just so someone can fill their brains with Greek and Hebrew and big words that no one outside of the church ever uses. No, we are to teach people to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Now you may be thinking this, well what about grace? Isn't grace enough for me? Seems like you're making some rules that I have to do now and that's not about grace. If that's what you think, let me explain this and see if this is how your thinking goes. God created the universe, and he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He knew everything about you, and yet he still chose to save you anyway. He knew the troubles that you would cause, and yet he still made you a son or a daughter. He's promised to keep you secure in his hands and give you everything that you need for life and salvation. He's guaranteed you a future free of sickness, pain, and death, not in these mortal bodies. But one day those things will go away. And he's promised eternal life in his presence and punishment for sin and evil. Now he's done all that for you. And someone would still question and say, no, I'd rather live my life in my own way. Jesus has given us his grace, but he's also given us instructions for how we are to live and believe. So for the Christian, this passage means that we first need to celebrate and then we need to get to work. We celebrate what Jesus has given to us, that we were once dead and he breathed life into our lungs and gave us a new identity. We are new creations in him. We celebrate that every day. But we also need to get to work making disciples. Every Sunday that we can, we gather together and we sing and we fellowship and we learn. That's essential for following the command in Matthew 28. Be at church every week. Open your Bibles. Prepare your hearts beforehand. This is so important for your discipleship. But we can't stop there. We can feed and feed and feed, but at some point we're going to be too full to do any good. We must put what we've learned into practice. This means stepping out of our comfort zone to invade the lives of others, to give them the gospel, and then show them how to mature in Christ. Are we doing that? Are we seeking out relationships beginning right here in this church where we can pour ourselves into others for the glory of God? When was the last time that you took someone out to lunch or invited someone over to your house for dinner merely to talk about God and his word? In the church, the understood pattern is that the mature Christians will disciple, train, teach, and guide the immature doesn't always work this way, but often means that the older disciples the younger. Older men need to spend time with younger men. Older women need to spend time with younger women. But all of this talk about discipleship means nothing if someone first doesn't have a changed heart and a changed mind. If someone has never repented of their sin and put their faith in Christ as Savior, the conversation about discipleship stops before it begins. But Jesus has given us a command to go wherever we may be 
and give the gospel of God's grace to those who are dead in their sin. It's a message of hope. That this life, the experiences that we face, is not all that there is. And that God has given us a way to be made right with him, a way to be made whole. This should be what keeps us going each day. When things get too difficult for you, go find someone to share Jesus with. When life is too stressful and you just want to run, go find someone to share Jesus with. And when you feel like giving up, go find someone to share Jesus with. See, every time I share the gospel or I disciple a brother or a sister, I leave energized, refreshed, and encouraged. See, evangelism and discipleship are just as important for the one giving it as the one receiving it. This is our joy. This is our hope. This is our life. Let's go and serve our king through our obedience to his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for the work that you've done in and through us, that you have brought us in, not just to your family, but you've given us a charge to be your ambassadors, to be your uh, missionaries on the, the mission field that is our neighborhood, our job, our schools. Father, please burden our hearts so that we cannot get away from this calling that you've given to us, that we know people who need to hear this truth. And Father, help us to understand that discipleship doesn't begin and end with evangelism. It continues on and on. Challenge us, Father, to, to see those in our church family that need to be trained and to help mature in their faith. Lord, help us to be obedient to your command. 